Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. And on today's show, I've got James Greiger. Did I pronounce your name correctly? It's, it's Krieger. Krieger, sorry. Uh, so yeah. welcome on to the show, James. Thanks for having me. So can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do for the listeners that don't know about you? Yeah, so I run a website called weightology.net uh, where I basically I coach clients on fat loss and weight loss and muscle gain and I also write articles. Um, I have a research review where I uh, cover um, all the latest research in the fitness and exercise industry. I'm also a scientist myself. I actually have been publishing work alongside people like Brad Schoenfeld and others, uh, you know, work related to nutrition and building muscle and things like that. Uh, I've got two master's degrees, one in exercise science and then the other one in nutrition. Been involved in the fitness industry really since since the 90s. I knew Lyle McDonald back in the 90s, uh, so I've uh, been pretty well connected to a lot of the people in the industry uh, for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm the former uh, research director for a corporate weight management program. Uh, we mainly treated Microsoft employees, and our average weight loss was, was about 40 pounds in three months. So it was a really highly successful program. And so, yeah, that's just kind of a, kind of a brief rundown of, of the stuff that I do. So, James, talk to me about uh, hypertrophy in a little bit, because you, you did a study on uh, pre- versus post-exercise protein intake has a similar effect on muscular adaptation. So can you talk a little bit about that study? Yeah, so I collaborated on that study with Brad Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon, and the idea behind that study was, well, really what stimulated the idea for that study in the first place was that we published a, a big meta-analysis, and what a meta-analysis is, is where you take a bunch of studies and, and you put them all together and you kind of try to see what the trend is among a, a body of studies. So we did this meta-analysis on protein intake and, and timing of protein intake and, um, and, and hypertrophy. And the idea, you know, what we were looking for was, because everyone has this idea of, of this anabolic window that, like, you know, if you want to maximize your muscle gains, you got to get some protein in, you know, within 30 minutes or to an hour after your training session. Otherwise, you may not, you may not get the best gains. And... Our meta-analysis challenged that idea because um, what we found is that really the best predictor of gains was just total protein intake and not necessarily the timing of the intake. But one of the limitations we saw was there were very few studies that really directly addressed timing. You know, most of the studies out there, they would provide, you know, like protein or carbohydrate after a training session, but that's not really – you're not testing timing, you're testing pr additional protein versus carbohydrate. You know, if you want to test timing, you have to have, you know, in one group provide protein, let's say after the workout, and then another group provide protein, you know, before the workout or, you know, later on in the day or at some different time point. And so that's what kind of stimulated the idea to do that study, that protein timing study that we did. And so we, we took um, men, put them on a resistance training program, one group had protein before the workout, another group had protein after the workout, and what we found is that there were really no differences in their gains um, over the, over the um, time of the training program. Now, there were limitations to our study, and one of them was our subjects, we found that were a little bit in an energy deficit. You know, we had actually instructed them to, 
to eat a fair amount of food, but they were actually not eating enough even to maintain their body weight. And so, um, so these subjects were in a, in a slight energy deficit, which may have impacted the results. But what we could say from that study is at least if you're in an energy deficit, you know, if you're consuming protein before your workout or after your workout, it's not really going to make any difference to your gains. You know, another limitation of our study was the sm- sample size. And really that's a limitation of a lot of exercise studies is you just, you know, it's hard to get enough people to, you know, it's, it'd be nice if we had a hundred people per group, but that just doesn't happen. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's what we did in that study and certainly challenged the idea of timing. And I think Brad's got another study in the works, uh, another timing study in the works. And this time we want to make sure the subjects are not, uh, you know, in an energy deficit this time. So, and James, can you explain to the listeners why there is that myth of obviously taking protein after training? Yeah, yes. So the idea is what we do know is that when you do a weight training session, you stimulate what's called protein synthesis. You basically stimulate your muscles to build new protein. And a lot of people don't realize that process starts immediately after your training session. I mean, I mean, your muscles are already working to build new muscle tissue, you know, right after the training session. You know, a lot of people, you know, because there's some people that argue that, oh, you have to recover first before you build muscle, and it takes, you know, 24, 40 hours before your body starts to build muscle. That's not true. Your body's building muscle actually right away after the training session. So the idea is some people think that, well, geez, if I get this elevation in protein synthesis right after a training session, I better have some protein around if I want to maximize my gains. Um, but it's kind of a myth that it needs to be done right away because uh, th- there's a couple reasons why. Number one, you know, most, you know, unless you're training in a fasted state, you know, most most of us are not training fasted. We're we're, you know, we're either eating at some point before a training session or some point, you know, within a few hours after a training session. And so we already have some protein in our body that we, that, you know, because it takes time to digest protein and everything. And so most of us are training within an anabolic window anyway. I, so, you know, if you ate something one hour, two hours before your training session, you've already got some protein in your body. So you don't need to suddenly rush home and chug a protein shake right afterwards, you know. Um, and so you're always kind of, you know, again, unless you're training fasted, which is a different story, um, you're always going to be in, in a little bit of an anabolic window, you know, as long as you're eating a regular meal pattern. Um, the other thing is, is that protein synthesis, it's, it's not like it goes up for an hour and then it's gone. It's actually elevated for, you know, approximately 24 to 48 hours after a training session. Now, the biggest elevation happens probably in the four hours after a training session, but most people will eat within four hours of a training session, you know, most people aren't just going to go to the gym and then not have anything for four hours. So, so you've got plenty of time to ingest protein. It doesn't necessarily have to be in this, you know, 30 to minute to 60 minute window after a training session. So that notion that you, you, well, it's kind of that go to of having a protein shake, obviously after that 30 minutes, you could look to probably having a proper meal in, in all reality then. Yeah, yeah, you could just have a proper meal and you'd be fine. You don't necessarily need to have the protein shake or, or whatever. Now, you could have the protein, you know, if you're a person you're like, you know what, I just want to make absolutely 100% sure I'm going to have my protein shake, and that's fine. You know, it's certainly not going to hurt you. So, so you know, if people want to do that, you know, then that's fine. But, 
but you don't have to think that it's it's you know if you if you somehow miss a protein shake after a training session, but you're still getting the meal in you know within a reasonable amount of time, then it's, yeah, it's not something you need to worry about. So. Okay, that's quite interesting. And then in another study you raised, um, you looked at longer interset rest periods uh, enhance muscle strength and hypertrophy. Yeah. What I found interesting to that study was, obviously, uh, longer rest is normally associated with sh- strength training anyway. Is yeah. What, is why, why did you find from the results that you can associate it to hypertrophy as well? So, I think one of the reasons you tip, typically see the longer rests are better is just because you get higher load volumes when, you know, if you're doing multiple sets of an exercise, you know, if I'm doing, a, say, three or four sets of an exercise, if I take longer rest period, I can use more weight on each set versus if I'm taking short rest periods, well, I got to keep dropping the weight each set. And so... Um, so over a span of three or four sets, I just get higher load volume, and we know there's a relationship between load volume and hypertrophy. So the idea is is basically you're just you're able to create more muscle tension over a longer period of time, and and so that's why you get a better hypertrophy stimulus with the longer rest training. So um, now there may be some caveats to that. You know, there's some evidence possibly that for some of the small upper body muscle groups. Um, there may be some benefits to doing, you know, really short rest training, uh, but that evidence is kind of preliminary. But but for the most part, you know, I would say, you know, most of your training session um, should have reasonably long rest periods, you know, two probably two minutes or more usually. So. And and is it more so? How would I bring that question up? Um, that. It's a case because obviously it's not it's it's not a myth obviously with the sixty second rest is generally associated with hypertrophy, but for the ones that struggle with timekeeping, they, they it's, it's obviously you, you say that you're going to get better gains from taking that longer rest. Is it kind of being um, not keen to jump straight back into the exercise and letting obviously. Uh, your body recover in that space of time. So obviously, looking at obviously um, increasing your ATP, ATP levels back up, so you can perform the exercise. Well, letting the muscle perform at its best. Yeah. So um, yeah, because when you take a longer, you know, the problem is when you take short rest periods. Um, you know what happens is, um, yeah, you get a depletion of phosphocreatine, and so you're not allowing enough time for replenishment of phosphocreatine levels. Um, you also get a bigger buildup of acidic conditions in the muscle, which can actually impair muscle contraction um, and contribute to fatigue. And so, um, and so, yeah. So you're not able to use as much weight on subsequent sets, and so your so your overall load volume is impaired. And and there was even a study that looked at protein synthesis um, and rest intervals and saw a similar thing that when people did shorter rest intervals, not only was there a lower load volume. But there was also um, the magnitude of the protein synthesis response was not as big either. So, um, so it definitely kind of goes against the idea because it was believed for a long time that um, if you really wanted to train for hypertrophy, you should do you know short rest training, um, mainly because it would give you a big pump and stuff. But uh, but a lot of the data indicates that that for at least most of your training. Uh, um, uh, it's preferable to do, you know, longer rest. It doesn't mean you need to rest five minutes between sets, but 
Um, um, and it's going to be varied by the exercise. Obviously, you know, an exercise like a squat or a deadlift, you want to take more rest than, you know, an exercise like a, you know, like a barbell curl or something like that. You know, a smaller muscle group is going to um, recover its force production much faster than a, than a big heavy compound movement. So. And then the last one we go to is the single versus multiple sets of resistance exercise for my muscle hypertrophy. Um, obviously, you 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 obviously with what one set reps, it's generally a case of looking more at strength and power. And you were saying that obviously there's going to be a difference between doing one set as opposed to doing two to three. What surprised me was there was no difference between doing two two to three uh, to four or more. And why 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 do you think that was the case? Uh, you know, if you're referring to my 2010 paper, um, one of the reasons we didn't see a difference, uh, really, there was actually a difference in terms of the magnitude of the change, but it just wasn't statistically significant. And and so the biggest reason I think there wasn't a difference was because I didn't have enough studies at the time using that did four to six sets per exercise. There was only like two studies. And so I didn't have what's what we call statistical power. Um you know, I didn't have enough statistical power to actually say that there was a difference, even though it looked like there was. So, um, you know, Brad and I, we did kind of an updated version of that analysis recently, um, but we looked at it in terms of weekly volume, um, and we found that, you know, the best hypertrophy gains were observed with a weekly volume of at least 10 sets or more. So, you know, how you split that up, it could be five sets twice per week, um, you know, three to four sets, three times per week, you know, something like that. But it was, it was really a weekly volume of 10 sets per more or more that we found the best gains in, in muscle size. So, um, and, and that was, again, that was a meta-analysis. And then, James, if you didn't have the, uh, how would you put it, time constraints to be able to get in, say, 10 sets a week, would, uh, say, doing something like drop sets be more beneficial to that person? Yeah, I think I think so. I uh, um, I actually think there's there's some data out there that suggests that drop sets might be beneficial um, for people. You know, if you're lacking time, uh, if you're training with a low volume, um, I'd say the past two or three months I have been experimenting with drop sets. I you know, you know, with relaunching my site and getting my coaching business and everything else going, um, I uh, it was just it was really hard for me to get into the gym. And so I was only going to the gym twice per week. And, um, and I was just doing two whole body workouts per week. And at the time I thought, well, I'm just going to try to maintain, you know, but, but I was familiar with some data on drop sets. And I thought, you know what, I, you know, I'm going to do a lot of drop sets for my isolation movements, maybe just like one drop set per muscle group, you know? Um, uh, and so I started doing that and I would do like, you know, one set of, you know, 11, 12, 13 reps to failure, and then do three 20% drops, you know, so dropping the weight 20%, repping out as much as I could, dropping the weight 20%, repping out, and then finally one last 20% drop and then repping out. Um, and typically I might get, you know, four to six reps with each drop, you know. So um, so I did that. And what I was amazed at is that I actually sent a bunch, bunch of PRs and a, and a bunch of isolation movements doing that just twice per week. Um, it was kind of amazing to me. Uh um, so I would say, yeah, for people that 
it, you know, if you're lacking time and stuff, you know, that can be a really time efficient way to get, get a little bit more volume in, you know, um, I, I prefer doing them. I think they're the most beneficial for isolation movements. Cause if you're going to do a bunch of drop sets with compound movements, it's just too exhausting, you know? Um, and that's why I stuck with isolation movements for my drop set work. But, uh, um, but yeah, I think it's, it can be a, a nice way for people that have a limited, t um, amount of time to train. Um, it can be a certain alternative to really get an effective training session in and, and actually stimulate some gains. You know, like I said, I, I was kind of surprised with some of the improvements I had. Um, you know, I'll just give one example. Of the I was doing uh, there's one lateral raise machine that I really like in our in my gym. It's it's a life fitness lateral raise, and and um, um, you know I like it better than doing with dumbbells and stuff. And so I would do that one, and I had a, just doing one drop set of that twice per week. I had a, a huge improvement. I think. Um, Geez, it was like, I think my first week, I, I think my first, you know, my first set, initial set was like 50 pounds and I dropped to, I think, 40, 30 and 25. And then after like two and a half, three months, I was up to 75 pounds dropping to 60, 50, 40. I mean, it was just a, which is a huge improvement for a small muscle group like deltoids. I mean, that's, so I was kind of amazed that I had that type of improvement. But yeah, so I, I would say drop sets are definitely an effective alternative for people that lack, you know, training time. So, and then another one I was reading, I think re quite recently, uh, for hypertrophy would be looking at doing a pyramid set. Is that something you'd agree with doing as well? I, I think it was off the top of my head. It was a descending one. I think it was. It, it, yeah. So you're talking about, there was one study recently published where they compared traditional sets to, to pyramid sets to, to actually drop sets, but it was on legs. And what they found is that as long as you control for the load volume, there wasn't any difference between the methods. So really, so what, what it means is it comes down to a personal preference. I mean, th there's, there's no distinct advantage to any of those. If you're already training with a reasonably high volume and you're, and you're controlling for the load volume. So, um, so whether I do five straight sets or five, you know, pyramid style sets, as long as the overall load volume is similar between the two strategies, um, you know, the gains are going to be similar. So, so it comes down to personal preference really for, for, the, for that style. Okay. And our, our personal preference, obviously you're quite, you're quite well known within, this industry, within the industry for both your hypertrophy and fat loss work. Um, in terms of your personal preference, what does uh, what further research would you like to obviously see be, be done? I want to see more volume uh, work on volume. Uh, you know, when Brad and I did our meta analysis on you know the number of sets and and weekly set volume and hypertrophy, we're really surprised at the small number of studies really looking at at dose response for volume in trained subjects. I mean, there was, there was only like two or three studies. I, I think there was only two looking at a dose response in trained subjects. Um, and, um, and so there needs to be more work like that. You know, there, there needs to be a study where you've got a low volume group, a medium volume group and a high volume group, and they're all trained subjects and, you know, and then you track them, you know, for 10, 12, 16 weeks or whatever. So, uh, so yeah, they're definitely that. That's one area where I would like to see more work on is is 
is training volume because I, there's it, it surprises me that there hasn't been more work done in that area because um, uh, there, there's you know there's so many studies out there that just compare one to three sets and that's all they do and and like that 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 type of work has been done to death and so we need more dose response type stuff you know what about one versus three versus five sets you know or per session or or you know weekly volume a weekly volume of five sets versus 10 versus 20 or something like that. You know, we need definitely need more work like that. So. And then if you had to take an initial hypothesis of where you'd see uh, more results coming from, what would your be your inkling? Would it be a low, a low, would it be a low, medium or high? I would say, I would say you'd get more results for the high volume up to a point, but I think, I speculate based on some of the studies that I have seen, um, there doesn't seem to be much of a benefit of going beyond 15 to 20 weekly sets for any particular muscle group. It seems like that's where the gains just totally taper off. Um, but there hasn't, I would say there hasn't been any, really any good direct work looking at that. So I, really I'm making an inference from studies, uh, you know, other studies that have kind of used those volumes, but haven't really directly investigated a dose response effect. So, um, you know, there's that one German volume training, for example, that, that study that was recently published. And, you know, if you looked at the weekly set volume, the, um, the one group was, you know, one group was like in the, in the mid fifteens, I think per week, I can't remember maybe 15 to 17 or 15 to 18 sets per week. And then the German volume group was something like it was twice as big, you know, it was, uh, you know, 30 to 36 or something like that. And, and that German volume group didn't do any better than the, the group that did half the volume. So, um, so that's, you know, that study right there is a, is a hint to me that, that, uh, um, there is a limit to how much benefit you can get from additional volume. Um, and that limit may be in that, you know, 15 to 20 range possibly, but we need more direct work on that. So, and if we looked at, Possibly going over fifteen a weekly volume fifteen a weekly volume of fifteen. Are you looking at more going towards overtraining? Obviously, the impact that has obviously resulting in fatigue, and obviously you're going to kind of regress to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I, to a point. I mean, I think at first you're rather just you'll just kind of you'll still get gains, but you just they're not going to be any better. But I think if continued for a long period of time then yeah, you may start to show some signs of regression or overtraining or, or, or things like that. Um, um, I think it's really hard to over, really overtrain with weights from a muscular performance perspective. I mean, you really got to train a lot, I think, um, and, and with a lot of fatigue and be training the failure all the time and things like that. Um, I think what you got to more watch out for is the impact on like soft tissues and joints and things like that. I think that's where, you know, high volumes can really get you. Um, you know, rather than from a gains perspective, um, you got to be wary from just an over injury overuse type perspective, things like that. So, um, um, I think that's where people want to be really careful with the really high volumes of training. And, and you know, if, you know, if you're going to do a really high volume, you know, make sure make sure you periodize your training at least enough where you got you know periods of low volume to make sure your your joints and stuff are, don't take a beating. So. Does it come back to that notion, James, that uh, obviously with 
people wanting to do high lo loads of um, uh, repetitions, they're just concentrating on the repetitions and forgetting about form. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't want to. Well, there's two things. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to forget about your form. Uh, you don't want to. You know, get just get reps. You know, whatever the cost. Um, and and not even just form, but um, you know, matter no matter how good your form is, um, you know, tissues can only take so much loading. You know, over periods of time, and you know, they need. You know, they need periods of recovery, just like anything else. And so, um, um, and the thing is, is Soft tissues like ligaments, tendons, things like that, they recover much more slowly than muscle tissue does. And, and so that's something that people need to be aware of, you know, especially if you're, if you're um, an older trainee. You know, if you're in your late 30s, 40s, 50s, then you really got to be much more careful with the volume. You know, sometimes you can get away with a lot of things when you're in your 20s, early 30s that you can't necessarily get away with uh, when you're older. So I, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> And then James, talk to me. What was the reason behind you wanting to do of uh, go into the uh, how would I put it uh, the phys the phys physical competitions? Oh yeah. So the reason I wanted to do a physique contest was um, uh, well, a couple things. I mean, I had always been a really naturally skinny guy. So over years, I was always trying to bulk up. You know, bulk, bulk, bulk. But I would never actually try to lean out and. You know, I got away with that for a long period of time, but then, you know, over the years, you just keep accumulating a little bit more fat, a little bit more fat, you know, and and, and then all of a sudden, one day, you just look down, and you're like, geez, I, I can't believe where I'm at now, you know, and so, um, so I decided to do a men's physique show, uh, partly because, you know, I'm not big enough to be a bodybuilder, you know, um, you know, I, I didn't have the type of physique to be a bodybuilder, but, um, but I do have a nice shoulder to waist taper. You know, I've, usually when I am really lean, I have a very, very small waist, which I thought, okay, look, that could work well for men's physique. And, and I'm sure I could do a, you know, I could never compete in a really big show, but, you know, I, I'm, you know, I thought, oh, I could probably do, you know, decently in a smaller show. Like, you know, and I knew we had some small local shows. So, um, so I thought it'd be a great motivation for me to just establish myself to actually get as lean as possible because I really hadn't really tried that for a long period of time. So, um, um, so yeah, so that's what kind of led to that decision. And, and I ended up placing second in my, in my class out of like five guys. And so, so I did decently and, um, and I'm possibly considering doing another show, end of September, early October. I'm not sure yet though. I haven't really decided whether I want to or not. So it, it depends on if I feel like I can come back, you know, looking better than I did the last time. So we'll see. Um, but, um, but it's, it's kind of for you, for you, it's kind of showing the scientific knowledge that you have and putting it into, how would I put it from into a kind of physical state. So you can say, well, this is what I've learned. I put it into practical sense. Yeah, yeah, and I did, and I did do that, and and actually, um, for the the members of my research review, I've I've had an ongoing series uh, where I kind of described my prep journey and and how I made the decisions I made, and and um, uh, you know the, the science that all my decisions was based off of, you know, for, for you know whether it was training decisions or diet decisions, things like that. Um, and then also it helps me now, you know, now that I did that, I feel like it helps me 
with my current clients too. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's a lot better, you know, if you're going to coach people, if you've been through something similar, um, so you can at least identify with them, you know, somewhat, uh, um, uh, and, and it also helps my clients too, so they can see me like, Hey, you know, he doesn't just have the knowledge, but he knows how to apply it to himself as well. So I think that, I think that's probably a good notion with any coach. It's you, you, you kind of not telling somebody I'll do this, but I don't know what the effects are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, would be kind of the notion for, I think from the female perspective, why do you think that women shy away from, it's probably a little bit less so now, uh, would it been obviously commonplace to a certain extent with people being afraid of the, uh, resistance training to a certain extent, because obviously women think they're going to bulk up. Yeah. And obviously from a scientific perspective, what would be kind of the levels of testosterone they would have to take to obviously get like a male from obviously from a anabolic kind of standpoint? Well, yeah, they would have to take, yeah. I mean, men just naturally have about 10 times the amount of testosterone that women do. And so, so yeah, I mean, for a woman to gain the type of muscle that a, a man can, and, and, you know, and I'm going to say on average here, I mean, you're always going to have some genetic freaks out there that there's some women out there that put on muscle really easily, you know, um, uh, and there, there, there are men out there that, that really struggle to put on muscle. So, so obviously there's a lot of, there's some variation out there, but I, you know, on average, um, you know, a man is going to gain a, a lot more muscle than a woman, uh, you know, if they're training the same and, 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 uh, so yeah, a woman would have to take, you know, I, I don't know what type of doses they'd have to take. You know, I'm not very well versed on the actual doses of various steroids and stuff like that. You know, I know, um, certain forms of testosterone, you know, there's research out there looking at doses of like 600 milligrams and things like that. So, you know, I don't know what the doses would be for females, but I just know that, you know, men have test 10 times the testosterone that women do. And, and there's just, you know, the vast majority of women just aren't going to put on the type of muscle that a man can put on. It's just, you know, um, it, it just isn't going to happen. So, um, so there's no reason that women can't, you know, push it hard in the gym and push heavy weights and things like that. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually going to be of benefit to them. And James, why, why is there that notion that you can apply, uh, the hypotrophy, kind of methods to both men and women um because you know even though men and women have different you know maybe in terms are different in terms hormonally and there's some other differences the way their muscles respond to training is similar in in the sense that you know um you, you take the muscle tissue of a woman you probably apply overload to it it's gonna you're gonna stimulate protein synthesis in the muscle just like you would with a man, and so you're gonna get an increase in muscle size. There's no reason why the training program needs to be designed, you know, radically different. Now, you know there are structural differences between men and women that that uh, you know um, may affect program design a little bit as far as exercise selection and things like that. But um, but overall, 
Um, you know, there's not a, you don't necessarily need to design a hypertrophy program for men that much different from the way you would a woman, you know, um, other than maybe their personal preferences on what they want to see hypertrophy, you know, um, then you might, you know, obviously change some of your exercise selection and things like that. But, you know, the, the goal is ultimately, you know, if you're going to go to the gym, whether you're a man or a woman, you, you're trying you're trying to get stronger and you're trying to get bigger and, and, you know, there's a variety of ways you can do that. Um, and, and really it comes down to a personal preference and, and, you know, what, what are you most interested in? Are you most interested in strength? Um, are you most interested in hypertrophy or you're interested in kind of a mix of both, uh, you know, um, so, so obviously the, the individual needs need to need to be factored in, but, uh, but overall, you know, if a woman wants to put on muscle, I mean, there's, there's, there's not going to be enormous differences in program design from how a man might put on muscle, you know? So. That's quite, that's quite interesting. The analogy that you, you put, obviously the only factor is going to be very individualistic and that's, that's an element of training that you should do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of obviously when we come back to that hypertrophy again, um, Obviously, it's something that even if you wanted to lose weight, it's something you you want to obviously look at training as well. Yeah, yeah. So and, and I um, because that's the thing. I mean, you know, if you're even if there's someone interested in weight loss, you want to try to preserve your muscle tissue as best as you can. And the best way to preserve muscle is is basically train to build it. You know. Um, now, if you're in an energy deficit, you're, you're most of the time you're not going to build as much as you would if you're not. Uh, but still, you're, you're going to have the same effect. And so, um, you know, I am of the opinion that the best the best program for maintaining muscle um, in an energy deficit is not going to be that much different from the best program for building muscle when when you're not in an energy deficit. So, and and James. If you're doing too much cardio, can that have an effect, obviously, on your um, muscle density? Well, there is, um, there is, you know, a lot of data out there on um, what we would call interference between endurance training and strength training, and and there is evidence that yeah, if you do too much cardio, um, you may impair your your gains in hypertrophy. Now, there's going to be a lot of genetic differences in terms of that. I mean, I've seen some guys, I mean, you look at a guy like Alex Viata. I mean, that guy is amazing. He does a lot of endurance training, but he's also put on some pretty amazing muscle too. So um, so there are ways you can combine the two, but but for the most part, I would say, you know, if, if you're interested, if you're interested in putting on as much muscle as possible, um, you know, too much endurance training is probably going to interfere with that process. So, um, uh, you know, it comes down to specificity, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, specific adaptation to impose demands, you know, it's like, you know, what are you trying, what exactly are you trying to achieve? And if you, you put too much, you know, if you, if you're sending your body mixed signals, you know, one, one area you're trying to, you're trying to tell it to gain muscle and get bigger, and the other area are trying to like, well, no, we want to gain all this endurance and possibly even get smaller in the process. You know, you're sending two different signals. So, and what would constitute too much cardio, or would it depend that, on the individual? 
Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the individual because it's going to depend. I mean, it's going to depend on a number of factors. It's going to depend on their training volume uh, in terms of the weights. It's going to depend on what their diet is like. I mean, obviously, the more the more they're dieting, you know, if you're in a bigger energy deficit, you're not going to be able to handle as much. Um, and and then there's just going to be genetic differences. You know, you know, someone who really struggles to put on muscle um, probably shouldn't be doing any endurance training versus someone who um, has a really easy time putting on muscle, um, probably can get away with a fair amount of endurance training. So I'd say, yeah, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule to that. It's really going to depend on the person. Um, so, well, that's some very useful tips there, James. So I think we'll wrap it up there. So once again, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, this podcast will be aired every Thursday. So until next week, I will see you then.